That chat is brought to you by Walters. Monday through Friday, Walters opens at noon for lunch, midday baseball watching, and even the occasional European soccer match. So if you find yourself around the ballpark during the day, make sure you walk on over to Walters. Walters is also the perfect place to watch football with friends, whether it be Monday, Thursday, or the weekend. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Breaking ball, swing and a miss. Runners going, throw to third. Out at third is the call. Mercer on the tag on the throw by Kbert Ruiz. Pitch is hit high in the air to deep right field for Ruiz. Way back it goes. Castellanos to the wall, climbing the wall, and it's gone. Into the second row of seats in right center field, Kbert Ruiz has homered for the second night in a row. Now the fastball driven to deep center field. Thomas going back, way back. Warning track at the wall. It is gone. Goodbye. The game is over on a walk-off blast over the center field fence for Nicholas Castellanos. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, September 26, 2021. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Mark Zuckerman is off for this show. He's hanging out with Riley Adams. Uh, They both have the uh, same number of starts in this series for the Nats. I'm joined by the brains behind the Nats Chat podcast, the man whose fault it is that this podcast exists, Tim Shovers. And we're coming to you after a 7-6 walk-off loss for the Nats at the Cincinnati Reds on Saturday night in Game 3 of a four-game series. That's now 64-91 and on the season. Another game in which the Nats hit plenty, but another game in which the Nats pitching isn't close enough to being good enough. Eric Fetty, five runs, four and two-thirds innings, then five Nats relievers combined to allow two runs and three and two-thirds innings. Patrick Murphy, bottom of the ninth, giving up a one-out walk-off solo homer to Nick Castellanos to dead center. Tim, we have seen this script many times over the last few months, and we see it again. Nats hit just fine, but the pitching, again, is a problem. Yep, Eric Fetty in the fifth inning, you uh, he was really laboring there, and you could tell that that was going to be it for him, and we were in for another night of the bullpen in, not only in the fifth, and the sixth, and the seventh, and the eighth. And uh, Alberto Baldonado, Al, who we were cheerleading early on, starting to wonder, are his days numbered in the major leagues based upon some of his performances out of the pen recently? Yeah, you know, we've kind of seen a familiar script with Nats relievers summoned from the minors this year, and that is the guys initially look good, and then after a few appearances, the guys don't look so good, and we've kind of seen that with Alberto Baldonado. We saw that with Gabe Klobositz, you may recall. Like, the guy initially looks awesome. You're like, wow, did the Nets find something? And then you're like, oh, that's why that guy was in the minors. So 
So far, we're actually seeing some really good things from the new guy, John Romero, but, you know, we'll see what he ends up being. More on the Nats pitching in a moment, but in terms of, like, what mattered from this game, I mean, look, the season is winding down, as we've been saying, as I've been saying anyway for months. The outcomes of these games don't really matter, but I tell you what does matter right now and what's really exciting right now, and that is what we're seeing from Kbert Ruiz. He's busting out. He's busting out big time, and he had a really good game on Saturday night, both offensively and defensively. He goes one for four with a solo homer and a walk and throws out two runners on the base paths. Uh, Ruiz in the Nats three-run third drawing a two-out five-pitch walk. Ruiz in the top of the seventh, a one-out tie-breaking solo homer to right field for a 6-5 Nats lead. Ruiz in the top of the ninth barely missed a tie-breaking solo home run on a foul ball to right field, and that looked awfully close to like going off the right field foul pole and giving the Nats a 7-6 lead. And Ruiz, as a catcher, as a glove man, was terrific, throwing out two runners on the base pass. Bottom of the fourth, gunned down Kyle Farmer at second base, and Farmer's attempt to advance on a pitch in the dirt. And then Ruiz in the bottom of the fifth with runners on first and second, one out, and the Nats nursing a 5-4 lead, throwing out Delino DeShields Jr. in an attempted steal of third base. It's funny, Tim, for a while, we weren't seeing much from K-Bear Ruiz, and you know, I don't think any of us were like panicking, but it was like, okay, we'd like to see something. We're seeing a whole lot of something over the last, say, week and a half. And he really right now looks the part of a guy who can be your catcher for years to come. I mean, you can't certify that just yet, obviously. But man, these last handful of games, he's done a really good job. Yeah, I was going to say, Al, tonight in this one game in a vacuum on Saturday in Cincinnati, he looked like a franchise catcher. I thought he was fantastic defensively. Both throws were excellent. The throw down the second, the way he blocked the pitch and got in front of it and immediately popped up, I've seen that from a guy that's been in St. Louis for the last 15 or so years, many, many times. And then you talk about the power, you know, I mean, he was inches away, millimeters it felt like, from a second home run. And I've been so impressed by him this week. I thought he had a really good series in Miami as well. And I think this is... I know we're having a lot of fun with the Soto accolades and the walks and the MVP case, but from a future standpoint, I think this is the single most important thing for Nats fans to pay attention to in the final week, just to find out how good of a potential catcher they have in Ruiz. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The Soto stuff is the sexiest of the stuff, but like if you're analyzing, well, what really matters moving forward? I mean, it doesn't really matter if Juan Soto wins the batting title or not. It matters that Kbert Ruiz pans out, and right now he's looking like a guy who will pan out. Again, we'll see, but Kbert Ruiz now over his last eight games is 16 for 34. Yeah, 16 for 34 with two home runs, two doubles, 12 singles, a walk, and nine RBI. He's hitting for power now. He was not doing that. He was like, I called him the new Starling Castro on a recent installment of the podcast. It was just like a bunch of singles. Well, that's not the case anymore. He's hitting for some power. Uh, He finally drew a walk. He has not drawn many walks, but he gets a walk on Saturday night. And it just feels like every time he's up to bat, he's a threat to get to hit. The bat to ball skills are as advertised. And we are seeing this guy produce. And if he can throw out runners, anything close to the frequency with which he threw out runners on Saturday night, You have what you said, a franchise catcher. And the Nets really have not had that in all their time in terms of like being good, right? You look at that run of 2012 through 2019. Nets had some good catchers, had some productive seasons from catchers, but never anything close to like a franchise catcher. Like nobody was ever saying a contender for the best player on the Nationals is their catcher. You maybe have something like that here. And 
it's such a big deal that Ruiz and also Josiah Gray, right, those top two prospects in the batch of four prospects who the Nats got back for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner from the Dodgers work out. Like, it, it really is important that those two guys especially pan out. You know, we'll see again, but Ruiz has looked great. So very encouraging to see that with him. Another guy who continued to produce for the Nationals offensively on Saturday night was Lane Thomas. Uh, you know, this has kind of become almost like a played out storyline now. Lane Thomas is doing really well, but he does continue to do well. Like, I don't think we should take this for granted. Lane is the Nats starting center fielder and number one batter like every game. I'd have to go back and look at it. I, I can't remember the last time he wasn't their starting center fielder and number one batter. Two for five on Saturday night, solo homer and a single. Top of the fourth, he has a first pitch leadoff homer to center field for a 5-3 Nats lead. The homer going a projected 404 feet per stat cast. Top of the sixth, a leadoff single up the middle. Where are you on Lane Thomas? Mark will not call it. He will not yet say that Lane is an at starting center fielder and number one batter for next season. Is Tim Shovers ready to call that election? Uh, I'm not ready to call the election. Well, actually, well, let me explain now. I thank you for asking me this because I was going to weave this in at some point in the show. I'm ready to call it that Lane Thomas is starting in the opening day lineup for the Nats in 2022. Just right now, as I see it, or hoping, because I cheerlead hard for Victor Robles, I'll fully admit, I'd like to see him in left field on opening day with Robles in center field. But now you know that if Robles again is hitting you know, 180 or 202, you have an escape hatch and you can move Lane Thomas over to center field. To the Robles point, he was sent down for many reasons, but one of the reasons which you mentioned was to find his confidence. Well, he has been hitting better in AAA. Now it's AAA pitching, but I would like to remind people that the only reason Josh Rogers and Sean Nolan and even Paulo Espino are on the big league roster is because it happened to be their turn in the rotation for Rochester when the Nats had an opening. And my point is, is that obviously Zach Wheeler's not in AAA and Garrett Cole's not in AAA, but there are a lot of major league pitchers who are a break here and there from also being in AAA. So I put a lot of value into, into how he's hitting. Now you can disagree with that, whatever. Given all that, I want to see this full process through. I want to give Robles one more shot in center field with Thomason left and then you can move them over if need be. I have no problem with that. I've been a big Robles advocate this season. It just, you know, was harder and harder to mount that horse with the lack of production. I think it'd be a shame if this was it for Robles and he's no longer someone who they take seriously as a major league hitter. I don't think that that's the case. I think it may well be that he gets one last shot. But I think what's going to be tough is, okay, it doesn't seem like they're calling him back up for this season. So you're going to go into spring training next year, not really knowing where he's at, you know, because it's not going to matter what he does in the Grapefruit League games next season. Like, it's only going to matter what he does come the regular season. So are they going to put some blind faith into Victor and say, all right, we're going to start the season with you again as our every game center fielder? We'll see. You know, I don't know. They're very down on Robles. We saw that throughout this year with how quickly they pulled the plug on him as the everyday leadoff batter with, uh, you know, the gimmicky thing that Davey was stuck on for a while of batting Robles ninth behind the pitcher. You could tell they're kind of fed up with him. And so I don't know how much stock, how much faith they're going to put into him going into next season. I'm with you, though. I'd like to see that. And I do think you saying Lane Thomas is good enough to be a starting outfielder for the Nets. I think that is essentially calling it. Like, he is one of the opening day nine for the Nationals next season. And I think that's the point here. He's earned that spot. I mean, Lane Thomas now for the Nationals at the major league level this season Batting average 291, on base percentage 384, slugging percentage of 534. Like I said, it's become something that we've grown so, much, so accustomed to over these last few months. 
it doesn't really get that much attention anymore. It's not really that big of a deal anymore. And maybe that's the ultimate compliment to the job that Lane Thomas is doing is that this has become so routine and so familiar that it's not that big of a deal anymore when he does stuff. But I think like we need to keep noting this, he continues to do stuff. And so, you know, I know there's been this thing lately of like, well, John Lester hasn't been that bad for the Cardinals and the St. Louis made out okay from the trade. Okay, fine, whatever. I I really don't care what the Cardinals do. I know they're winning a bunch of games. Good for them. The Nats did a great job with this trade and they may have gotten themselves a starter for years to come. Uh, At the very least, they got themselves a piece. I mean, he looks the part offensively. I think he plays a pretty good center field. I don't think he's as good as Robles, but he's not bad. He can move around. We've seen him do some things. And if he can be, say, your every game left fielder for next season, terrific, because they may well need that for next year. I want to push back on one thing you mentioned. You said that what happens in Grapefruit League doesn't matter. Keeboom lost the job in Grapefruit League. So sometimes I feel like spring training stats do matter. And I feel like if Robles is hitting 176 through three weeks of exhibition play, they might make a switch. My point was more, if he does well in Grapefruit League play, we're not going to know what that means. You know what I mean? Because it's like, first of all, this past Grapefruit League season, we saw all kinds of results, and some of them did portend what was going to happen, and some of them meant nothing. Josh Bell looked awesome in exhibition play this past year, and then was horrendous in April, so it ended up meaning nothing. Now he's ended up having a good season, so maybe it meant something. Daniel Hudson looked atrocious in Grapefruit League play this past uh, spring training, ended up getting off to a lights-out start for the Nationals, so it ended up meaning nothing. I think the concern with Robles right now would be this. Is he a 4A hitter? Is he a guy who does well at AAA batting, but doesn't do well in the majors batting? And so essentially he's what you call a 4A hit batter, a guy who, if there was such a thing as the 4A level, he'd be good, but there isn't. So he's like stuck in that netherworld between AAA and the majors. We'll see. I mean, I still look at Robles and I'm like, this guy wasn't that bad as a hitter as recently as 2019. So can't we get back to that, you know? And, and this goes back to something we've been talking about of the Nationals having to fix people and not having done a very good job of that in recent years. But yeah, I mean, I think an opening day outfield of Lane Thomas and left, Victor Robles in center, Juan Soto in right, I would love to see that because that could be an outfield for years to come. But we don't know right now with Robles. It is good, though, to see him doing well at AAA. Like, because it would be really bad if he got demoted to Rochester and struggled there. Then you'd be like, oh, geez, like, what are we doing? The fact that he's done well, I think, okay, like, all is not lost with Victor Robles offensively. And certainly, uh, all is not lost with Lane Thomas. He has himself a good game on Saturday night. Well, Juan Soto uh, got on base three more times on Saturday night. Speaking of things that have become familiar, one run first inning, he draws a two out five pitch walk. And then adds three run third, Soto, a five pitch walk. Although he then gets thrown out at third base and trying to advance on a pitch that got away from the Reds catcher, Tucker Barnhart. And then Soto in the top of the fourth, a one out single to right center field on an 0-2 pitch. So, you know, there was another homer for Soto on Saturday night, but he does get on base three more times on Saturday night. So his major league leading on base percentage is at 473. His batting average is at 324. The major league leading walks total is up to a buck 37. I do want to get your take on this. So I did not think Soto had a very good defensive game on Saturday night. And the Reds two run fifth, he got charged with a fielding error. He failed to cleanly field the Nick Castellanos two-out game-tying RBI single that tied the game at five. But also in the game was that two-run ground rule double by Eugenio Suarez for a 2-1 Reds lead in the Reds' two-run second. That was one of those plays where Soto was charging. He failed to make a running backhanded catch. I don't know. He looked a step slow to me, Soto did, 
in right field on Saturday night. I mean, I know I'm nitpicking. The, the guy has been outstanding lately. And overall, he's, he's had a good fielding season. But, you know, if we're kind of saying, all right, like, how did he play on Saturday night? I did not think it was Juan Soto's best defensive game. I agree. I, I feel that I've noticed this, having watched him play every day this year, I think he's a distinctly different right fielder at home than on the road. Was it in Cincinnati or Miami? There hasn't been an off day in forever uh, where a, a ball kind of caromed around the corner and then bounced its way in, and he misjudged it, and a runner got an extra base off of it. And I feel like that's happened to him a bunch on the road this year. Like, he just doesn't have a good feel for kind of foreign dimensions than what he's used to at Navy Yard. So uh, I would have to look at his metrics. But I agree with you that I I, I thought he looked a little... um, I don't even know what the word is. It's not like Bryce Harper in 2018, where it looked like Harper was was playing in glass because he didn't want to get hurt. But it just... I agree. It didn't seem all there tonight. He, the thing with Soto that's interesting is, I mean, he's obviously, he's obviously so young, but he's pretty bulky. Like he carries a lot of mass. You know, he looks physically more mature than he actually is numerically. And so when you're carrying that kind of bulk, it's not always easy to maneuver in the outfield. And I kind of, I kind of get that sense from him sometimes defensively. I thought we saw that some on Saturday night where, you know, when he's having to sprint toward these balls that aren't hit right to him. He's carrying a lot of mass, and so he can't move with the grace and the speed that you'll see, say, a Victor Robles move with, or even like a Lane Thomas move with. Like, if you watch Lane Thomas, he can move in center field. You know, you you watch some of the great defensive outfielders. They move. Soto can to a degree, but at times he looks a little slow. You know, maybe to your point, like, he's trying to judge the dimensions and the environment that he's in, and so maybe that's a part of it. But look, I mean, again, we're nitpicking. The guy has been all-world over these last few weeks, really for this season, has another game on Saturday night in which he get, gets on base three times. Josh Bell has another game in which he has multiple hits, two for five with an RBI single and another single. Bell in the Nats one run first, a two out first pitch single to right center field. Uh, Bell in the Nats three run third, a first pitch opposite field, RBI single to left field to tie the game at two. Uh, we saw Luis Garcia be productive again on Saturday night. Luis, two for five with an RBI double and a single. One run first, Garcia, two out RBI double to right field for a one nothing Nats lead. Garcia top of the fourth, a two out first pitch single through the right side of the infield. It's, it's been a while since we've had you like on the actual show. Where are you with Luis Garcia? Do you, do you feel like he is a true piece for the future. Are you comfortable in saying that at this point, or are you still in the camp that you need to see more with him? I'm writing him in pen for the opening day lineup at second base next All right, so he's a lock. He's a lock. Now, is he an everyday second baseman for 10 years? I don't know. I do think he's a big leaguer. That maybe means that he is a utility guy. I don't know. I'm not ready to call it that he's you know there every single day, second base is taken care of for the Nationals. But I think he's clearly proven it and earned it. His bat has been impressive. His power has been impressive. His glove has been shaky, but the highs have been very high. So I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt of more and more experience. That game against Philadelphia, that day game where it all fell apart in the eighth inning, obviously stuck out to us in our minds, but I think he's played a lot better since then. Three weeks ago, I probably would have had a different answer, but I've really liked what I've seen this September from him. He's gotten better. You know, if if we're going to note when guys get worse, let's give the Nats credit when guys get better and Luis Garcia is looking better. Like the two young potential building blocks who've really made improvements over these last few weeks are K-Bert Ruiz and Luis Garcia. And that matters a lot. That's a big deal. Uh, You're trying to figure out what you have in these guys. And it's not like you're going to arrive at full definitive judgment by the end of the season on those guys or really any of these potential building blocks. But 
you want to have a better sense of what you have. And you certainly are encouraged right now from what you're seeing from Kbert Ruiz. And I think you're encouraged too from Luis Garcia. And like with Ruiz, Garcia's hitting for some power. I mean, he's piling up these doubles. It's been, I think, rather sneaky what's happened here. Luis Garcia's gone from a guy who was hitting for like no power to now he's actually among the Nationals leaders this season in doubles. Luis Garcia has 16 doubles on the season. Juan Soto has 20. Like Luis Garcia has four fewer doubles than Juan Soto has the entire year. So it's been good to see that. Like Luis, all of a sudden he's slugging 412 on the year. It wasn't that long ago. The slugging percentage was like microscopic. So good for him for doing as he has been doing. And, you know, in this series in which Davey Martinez, very interestingly, has allowed for Luis to bat in the number five spot, he's actually holding his own. I mean, it hasn't always been pretty. Got off to a slow start, but he had the huge hit in the game on Friday night, and he comes through with a pretty productive game here on Saturday night. Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates, a huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005. Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf, helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith with a K. That chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences 
So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And the 3-2 pitch is low ball four on a curveball. So how much longer will they let him go? That's, that's the question here. Kyle Farmer will be the batter. Runners on first and second. Two out, and that question is answered now. Tim Bogar out of the dugout on his way to the mound. And that is all for Eric Fetty. Well, when it came to the Nats pitching, like we said, Saturday night was another bad game. And it's another bad start for Eric Fetty. Uh, Eric Fetty in this 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night. Five runs in four and two-thirds innings. Fetty gave up seven hits, three doubles, and four singles. He issued three walks and a hit by pitch. He had just one strikeout. You know, if there was one thing you could say about Fetty this season, it's that the guy was having his best season in terms of racking up strikeouts. I mean, you know, not that he was uh, Robbie Ray this year in terms of strikeouts, but by Fetty standards, this had been the best season of his career, but he has just one strikeout on Saturday night, throws 96 pitches over the four and two-thirds innings. Fetty giving up two runs bottom of the second, during which he allowed each of the Reds' first three batters to reach base, gave up a leadoff single to Tyler Stevenson, gave up a double to Kyle Farmer, followed by a two-run ground rule double by Eugenio Suarez for a 2-1 Reds lead. Fetty gives up a run bottom of the third, leadoff ground rule double by Jonathan India, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12, then gives up a one-out first pitch RBI sack fly by Nick Castellanos. And then Fetty gives up two runs, bottom of the fifth, leadoff single by TJ Friedel on a 1-2 pitch, a pin seven pitch walk by Delano DeShields Jr., full count single by Jonathan India to load the bases, full count RBI sack fly by Max Schrock, and then a two-out game-tying RBI single by Nick Castellanos to tie the game at five. Fetty then issues a two-out six-pitch walk at Tyler Stevenson gets pulled from the game. So Eric Fetty now on the season, 27 starts, a career-worst ERA of 526. It really is disappointing to me what has ended up happening with Eric Fetty this year, especially given the start to his season. First 10 starts, he had an ERA of 333. We were singing his praises on this podcast. Is this the step forward breakout season we've all been dying to see from Fetty off the Nats having taken him with a first round pick in 2014? For a while, it looked like the answer was yes. As this season has gone on, the answer has been a resounding no. And, you know, unlike Patrick Corbin, who maybe is ending his terrible season in a positive fashion, you can't say that about Eric Fetty. It just has not gone well for him as this season has gone on. Al, to me, he is the single biggest disappointment post-trade deadline on the Nationals. Now, bullpen aside, we know that's uncompetitive. It's what it is. You know, we all accept that. 
But we opened the show with all these positives, right? Ruiz, Thomas, Garcia, three guys two months ago, we didn't know if they would be on the opening day roster. Many Nats fans hadn't even heard of them. But Fetty, all he's had to do in the past few months in this uncompetitive rotation, which his spot has never been in question, regardless of how his outing has been, he's been so disappointing, Marlins outings aside. And it's just, can you pitch six innings? Can you give up three or four runs? You know, tonight the Nats are up 5-3, and I was just waiting for him to give up the lead, you know? And it's like, I don't even have any faith in you when you're not facing a team named Miami to hold on to a lead when your offense is hot. And that is what is so disappointing because, as you said many times, it's here on a platter for him. All he has to do is be barely passable to lock up a starting rotation spot in 2022. And yet again, here we are at the end of another season, like, what do the Nats have in Eric Fetty? And it's just, how many times are we going to keep asking the same question? Yeah, and I think when you have to keep asking that question of a pitcher or of any athlete, what do we have in this guy? And you're multiple years into the guy's career, and in this case, you're seven years removed from when the Nats drafted him. The answer is, you know what you have in the guy, and that is, you don't have anything that you can count on, you know? So if the Nats had anything in the way of true organizational pitching depth, Eric Fetty would not be an option for the rotation next year. He might not even be on the team next year. Because the Nats are still so lacking in pitching depth, I do think there's an excellent chance he's at least on the team next year. And I think there's probably a pretty good chance he's in the rotation next year. That doesn't mean that he should be. I mean, at some point you have to cut bait. At some point you have to say, it's just not happening here. Now, is Eric Fetty an example of bad player development for the Nationals? Hard to say. He could be. You know, this is the worst season of his career. So this is a guy who has gotten worse, not better. This is a guy with talent. Nobody denies that. Again, it was a first round pick in 2014. At times, we have seen him do well. So is this someone who, if he's coached up better, and if the Nationals do things in a better way, can be a productive starter at the major league level? Maybe. Or it just could be that he's just not very good. And this isn't about the Nationals coaching or player development or anything like that. Like, he's just not that good. What you would hate to see from a Nationals perspective is you non-tender him this offseason, he goes somewhere else and he blossoms, you know? Like, I I could see Fetty as a guy who, like, he gets non-tendered, the Tampa Bay Rays get their hands on him, and he ends up pitching to the tune of a a 340 ERA over 30 starts next year or something like that. Yeah, like, you know, it's just like the kind of thing that would happen. So for that reason and others, I don't think that Fetty won't be back with the Nats next year. But I think there's an argument to be made that he shouldn't be. There's an argument to be made for it's just not happening And he's just not cut out for this. And I hate it that the season plays out this way for Fetty because, again, he looked like a bright spot not that long ago. And it just has totally unraveled for him. And, you know, there's an element of bad luck for him, like with him getting COVID and some of the other things that have taken place. You know, it's interesting, too, the psychology of this. When he wasn't assured of a spot in the rotation, he was pitching really well. And now over these last few months in which he has had nothing but certainty in terms of having a spot in the rotation, he hasn't pitched well. I'm not saying that one has caused the other, but I just think it's kind of interesting that it's worked out that way. He was pitching at his best when he didn't know if he was still going to be in the rotation. We were lobbying for that, right? We were like, you got to keep Fetty in the rotation. And now, I mean, it almost looks comical that we had those conversations. So I don't know where they go from here with him, because I think the idea that like next year will be the year that he breaks out, like, what are we going to be saying this in year 14? Oh no, this is the year Fetty's going to bust out. Like, no, you kind of are what you are after a while. And I guess that's the real concern at this point. Like, this is what Fetty is. He's a guy who just has not delivered upon having been a first-round pick in 2014. 
Yeah, well, we're in year 14 of Paulo Espino, so maybe we should be patient. But, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I will say this. To your point about non-tender, CBA looming stuff aside, let's remove that for a second. I'm confident that he'll be in West Palm Beach February 15th. I don't know where he'll be on opening day. My gut feel right now, and we've had a, a couple people email this in, if he doesn't make the rotation, I would like to see him maybe as a long man out of the pen. Try that. And I know we've seen him You do that over over time. And maybe he is the sixth starter, or maybe he has to be the fifth starter. But I think it would be the wrong move to non-tender him because it's sort of like, what's the downside of keeping him? Because you still have more control for him, quote-unquote, cheap. So I'd be extremely surprised if Rizzo made that move. I would be, too. And especially, they don't have many options. And whatever they do this offseason, they're not going to all of a sudden fix all of their problems. And that's have a lot of things that need to be addressed. And some of them are bigger picture things. And so you're not going to fix all these things this offseason. And you may not even have the opportunity to fix many of these things this offseason, given what you mentioned, the looming CBA Armageddon. But it's just frustrating if you're a Nats fan with this Fetty thing, because we've been waiting on this for years. You know, every spring training, we dance this played out dance of Eric Fetty and Joe Ross and Austin Voth and who's going to be the fifth starter and who's going to do well this year. And it's like the answer keeps being none of them. That's the answer. OK, all three end up not delivering to varying degrees season in, season out. And so you need pitching depth and maybe Fetty can help to provide that. But, you know, we're done with this idea of Eric Fetty as a reliable piece of the rotation. I mean, until proven otherwise, Eric Fetty is a guy who is a fifth starter at best. But otherwise, what you just said may be what he is, which is like a sixth starter and a long man in the bullpen. And you need people like that. But, you know, at some point, you need to kind of come to a conclusion of what you have uh, in a player. Then with the Nats bullpen on Saturday night, uh, stop me if you've heard this before, but the bullpen had issues. Five relievers giving up two runs over three and two-thirds innings. Uh, some did well. Mason Thompson did well. Face one batter, got one out, struck out Kyle Farmer with runners on first and second, two outs to end the bottom of the fifth. Alberto Baldonado had problems again. Bottom of the sixth, faced four batters, but got just one out, gave up two singles and a walk. Then we saw appearance number two for John Romero, who is excellent again. Uh, Romero is the guy whose contract was selected from AAA Rochester on Thursday. This was the corresponding roster move to the Nats placing Yadiel Hernandez on the paternity list. By the way, Yadiel was activated off the list on Saturday. Uh, but John Romero is, is a guy who the Nats got in the Brandon Kinsler trade a few years ago. Had a very good season this year, over 55 combined innings for AA Harrisburg and AAA Rochester. Romero tossed a perfect bottom of the eighth in the 8-7, 11-inning loss at the Reds on Friday night. And then Romero in the 7-6 walk-off loss at the Reds on Saturday night comes into the game, bottom of the six, bases loaded, one out, game tied at five, and puts out the fire, gets back-to-back outs to prevent any runs from scoring. Like I said, we've seen this playbook before. Nats reliever called up from Rochester, initially looks great, then falls apart. There's not that much season left, so there's not that much time for a John Romero to start struggling. But he's done a really good job over two appearances, so I want to give him full credit. We saw Andres Machado, though, give up a run in the bottom of the seventh, leadoff six-pitch walk and Nick Castellanos into one-out game-tying RBI double by Kyle Farmer to tie the game at six. Patrick Murphy comes in. He tosses a perfect bottom of the eighth. Davey Martinez keeps Patrick Murphy in the game, but then in the bottom of the ninth inning, there's a deep drive by Nick Castellanos. Uh, this one to dead center as opposed to left field, and uh, Castellanos hits a one-out walk-off solo homer and the Reds end up winning the game. I mean, 
I don't know if you have the appetite to get into the strategy here of like, why wasn't Tanner Rainey in the game or something like that? I don't think it's a big ask, though, to ask Patrick Murphy to go a second inning. If you're Davey, you don't know if you're going to need Rainey for an extra inning. But the bullpen, again, because you have to use so many guys because the starter doesn't go deep into the game, the bullpen ends up faltering. I don't really have anything fresh to say on the pen, but you've noted on a few Sundays this year that that seems to be the day that Mike Rizzo likes to make some roster moves. And I know that it gets so Byzantine and confusing with uh, with selecting contracts and moving guys up and down. But I do wonder if there might be a little bit of a, a line change this weekend for some fresh arms for the final week. There still are, you know, seven more games. Baldonado has been used so much. Patrick Murphy had to go a second inning today. It seems like Machado is, you know, trying to break Ripken's streak out of the bullpen. And I feel for these guys because they are just so overused and there's really no good option because the, the starters don't go deep enough. So I'm kind of rooting for uh, for some pregame news tomorrow or Monday so we can get some fresh arms for the end, though they do have Romero and, and Rainey, but I think it's time. Yeah, I mean, Sunday usually is that day, so maybe they do do something. I mean, look, you only have a handful of games left. There is going to finally be an off day for the Nationals come Thursday. So, you know, barring a rainout, you know, that's that's going to be their first off day in like forever, it feels like. So, you know, you're just trying to make it through the rest of the season at this point. I, I think what is particularly concerning from a bullpen usage standpoint is you have a three-game series at Coors Field coming up this week, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday afternoon. We all know the deal with Coors Field. It is where pitchers go to get demolished. It's impossible to feel great about this upcoming series for the Nationals from a pitching standpoint. As things stand now, it looks like it'll be Josiah Gray game one, Patrick Corbin game two, Paolo Espino in game three. It would be lovely if all three pitched well at Coors Field. Raise your hand if you're counting on that. So my point is, you're probably going to be using a lot of relievers in the coming days. So you may need to get some fresh arms up, if not on Sunday, then on Monday or Tuesday. So we'll see. Like We talk about just trying to make it through the rest of the season. This is not going to be easy. A three-game series at Coors Field. You do have the off day on Thursday, but then comes a three-game series at home against the Boston Red Sox to close out the season. We know the Red Sox can hit. The Red Sox may well be playing for a whole lot in that series, so we'll see what ends up going down uh, from a pitching standpoint for the Nats. But it's been a terrible pitching season for the Nationals, okay? We all know that. We speak the truth on this podcast. That is the truth. The pitching's been terrible this year. And uh, just trying to make it through the rest of the season at this point. Seven games remaining for the Nationals. It'll be a Josh Rogers game on Sunday afternoon. Nats at the Reds to close out this four-game series, a 110 first pitch. You love to ask the question, who is the ace on the National staff right now? Is Josh Rogers, in fact, the ace of the Nats for the time being? He has done such a good job in this stretch here of starting games. Four starts for the Nats. He's been good to varying degrees in each of the four outings. He's thrown 25 innings. He has an ERA of 216. He has a whip of one. Dare I say the ace is taking the mound on Sunday for the Nationals. If he pitches well, Al, I'm willing to hand him the ace. But until then, (laughs) the secret weapon is the ace. Right now, Josh Rogers is the king of spades. Very excited to see how he goes up against the Reds. This is a huge day for Cincinnati. Their magic number for elimination is two. So a loss by them coupled with the Cardinals win, which seems guaranteed at this point based upon the way they're playing. And they're done. So we, we saw you know them go to the bullpen in, what was it, the third inning tonight with Gutierrez. We might see some more Game 7 over managing tomorrow. 
And uh, Rodgers is going to be facing a team that's going to be very, very motivated. But yeah, Al, to your point, if he pitches well, I'm more than happy to call him the new ace. All right. So the pressure is on Josh Rogers for Sunday. You get the Shovers championship belt of the ace of the national staff should you deliver again on Sunday. If nothing else, it's a lot of fun watching Josh Rogers pitch. You can tell he has a lot of fun pitching. He does that body rocking thing, which I just think is hysterical. He's got this like grin on his face while he's doing what he does. So if nothing else, you know the guy's having a good time. I'm assuming Kbert Ruiz will not be the Nats starting catcher on Sunday. I know he's white hot right now, but that's a big ask to ask him to catch again in this series off an 11 inning game on Friday night. Now you have a day game on Sunday off the night game on Saturday. So I'm crossing my fingers that Riley Adams finally gets a start here for the Nationals for the first time in forever. You know, I think it's been interesting too. You could have started Adams at first base and put Josh Bell in left field for some of these recent games with Yadiel Hernandez on the paternity list. We've been seeing a lot of Andrew Stevenson. I mean, you know, to me, I don't think we really need to see that much more of Andrew Stevenson. I think he is what he is, which is a fourth outfielder, you know, a nice bat off the bench, but he's not an everyday player. I don't know how much more exploration needs to be done with Andrew Stevenson. And oh, by the way, he had a defensive miscue in this game on Saturday night. And the Reds one run third. Uh, Stevenson misplayed Jonathan India's leadoff ground rule double as Stevenson went toward the left center field gap instead of going back on the ball and ended up getting spun around. He did like a 360 on the play. It was not a good look for him. So, uh, But it, it may be a moot point because like I said, I would think Adams gets the start at catcher. Uh, he better get the start at catcher. If Alex Avila starts a catcher on Sunday, there's going to be a riot shoulders. I just want you to know that. The streets of North Potomac are going to be burning. If, uh, <laughs> if he, <laughs> I'm with you. It's time to give Raleigh Adams a start, and it would be nice to give Ruiz a day off. He certainly earned it. And Riley Adams, to me, is going to be the most intriguing situation when they go to West Palm next year because, as you said, do you give him some time at first base? Will he just be the backup catcher? What's the DH situation going to be? There's so much potential flex with this guy. And uh, yeah, I want to see some Riley Adams because I so far I have loved him. I mean, he has been so good to watch that uh, it, it would be nice to see him behind the plate. With Riley Adams, like it's just ridiculous to me how he's been buried over these last few weeks. Like he has started once over the Nats last 14 games now. I just I find that to be absurd. And they were doing all this stuff with him working out at first base. And they've had Josh Bell play a lot in left field. Your left fielder went on the paternity list for multiple games, and Adams still wasn't starting. I thought that was like the perfect opportunity. Put Bell in left, put Adams at first, give this uh, lineup a try, see what it looks like. And if Adams is a disaster at first base, okay, fine. Like, these games don't matter. These last two months, August and September, are an opportunity for the Nats to try stuff, to experiment. And we haven't seen a lot of that. We really haven't. We've seen some of Bell and left, which has been good. But like by and large, it's like take advantage of this. Who knows the next time when the Nats will have something like this? Games in a regular season that you can use to try stuff. You know, this it's different from spring training in that regard. These are meaningful games, but they're meaningless in terms of the outcomes. But you can use these games to try to see what works, what does, and what do things look like. And I don't know. It just feels like they've kind of wasted some of that opportunity here. But it may be moot again because Adams may well be starting come Sunday. You can always email us at the Nats Chat Podcast, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. So we had a conversation on our show for the Friday night game about the extra innings situation with baseball right now. And I am a proponent of the automatic runner. I know it's not baseball at its purest, but I think these games are way too long. If you've been tracking 
where baseball is at this year from a standpoint of time of game, the average time of game for the season has skyrocketed this season. The last I saw, it was at three hours, 21 minutes. Uh, In recent years, the time of game per game had been like three hours and change maybe, you know, and to be up that much really is bad. And it's bad for a lot of different reasons. So the automatic runner thing I've been fine with. And if you caught our last show, Mark is kind of coming around to it because even he concedes the games are brutally long this year. But we wondered, we said, okay, well, do we need to do it where the automatic runner is on second to begin extra innings? Do you maybe wait an inning or two to do that? So we got this email from Bob, Bob in Virginia. He writes, he says, what if we had no extra runner in the 10th, a runner on first in the 11th, a runner on second in the 12th, a runner on third in the 13th, runners on first and third in the 14th, runners on second and third in the 15th, bases loaded for the 16th and beyond. As a fan, I think it would be exciting to see the rules change a little each inning. I would be more likely to stay up and watch. The reality is that games would rarely, if ever, reach the 14th or beyond, but it might be exciting as a possibility. What do you think about that? A uh, rising scale of men on base as the extra innings increase. I love the creativity. I love the thought. Uh, It's a little too extra gimmicky for me. I like this rule. Up until a few years ago, I was your standard baseball traditionalist and purist and all that stuff. Where it changed for me was August of 2019. Remember where the Nats and Brewers played that six-hour game? It was like 15 innings on a Saturday night. I covered the next day. It was a Sunday afternoon game, and the Nats jumped on top of the Brewers starter early. And out of the bullpen came a guy who was on a 5 a.m. flight that morning from San Antonio. And the game was a joke, and I felt bad for the people that paid tickets that day. They did not get a major league quality game that day. And that totally changed my thinking ever since, that we've got to figure out how to avoid these 15-inning games. So that's why I'm a fan of it. In a perfect world, if I ran the world, it'd be seven innings, and then we'd have normal eight and ninth, and then the, and then the gimmick would start in the 10th. That, to me, is the perfect move, but we got a ways to go before we get there. But to Bob's question, it's a little too much for me. But again, keep the ideas flowing. Yeah, it's the kind of thing I don't think baseball would ever do. I think there is some logic behind it. But I think what's also tough about the uh, the Bob idea is, as a fan, it becomes difficult to keep track of, okay, what inning is this? And what's the rule for the upcoming inning? You know, so it's kind of like you can, you can lose sight of that. But yeah, I, I think this is the number one issue for baseball in terms of like gaining more appeal nationally, gaining more appeal to younger people. The games have got to be shorter. I think way too big of a deal is made out of the whole three true outcomes thing. I think that's a very overrated thing. I think if the games were two and a half hours and you still had all of the home runs, walks, and strikeouts that we have, I don't think people would have a problem with that. I think the issue is time of game. A lot of that has to do with pace of play all of the time between pitches, but there's more to it than just that too. You see a lot of foul balls. You see a lot in the way, of course, of uh, pitching changes. You know, there's a, there's a lot happening right now. You also have things like the umpires not enforcing what they're supposed to be enforcing, which is batters keeping one foot in the batter's box at all times. The umpires do a terrible job with that. And they were told years ago to start enforcing that. And for whatever reason, they don't enforce that. And so you see guys step out of the batter's box constantly. And I just don't get that. I don't know why it has to be that way. But look, this has been a problem for a while for baseball and, uh, I don't have a lot of faith that it's going to get fixed anytime soon, but that doesn't mean that it's not an issue and that, you know, we shouldn't voice our concern with that. We care about the health of the sport and the sport's not in a good place right now in terms of attracting younger viewers in in terms of doing well nationally. And I think a big part of that is you're asking people, 
to spend three and a half hours, 162 times a season to watch a team, to follow a team. Nobody has that kind of time in 2021. I'm sorry. I don't care how big of a baseball fan you are. You maybe watch a few innings and then you go to bed. You know, but but here's the problem too. Once you condition people that they don't have to watch games in their entirety, they start watching less of games and then they stop watching games because you realize you don't need to watch any of the games. And and see, that to me is the slippery slope for baseball is that once you make it clear, okay, watching all these games isn't doable, then it becomes very easy for people to skip games. And once you start skipping games, you get checked out on seasons and you stop being a fan and you can see where that can take you. So I do think at some point, baseball has got to try to address this time of game issue. Well, I have a solution for those people who, who are struggling with the length of games. Listen to the podcast, skip your fair amount of games, but you'll be listening every single day. You'll know the ins and outs going in each day. And because you're listening, it will make you want to watch a few innings here and there. Next thing you know, you'll be back to watching the bulk of the games. So it all starts with the Nats Chat Podcast now. There you go. We watch the games so you don't have to. Understand that. Give us 20 minutes a day. You get everything you need from the previous day or night's game, which took three and a half hours. So you get three and a half hours worth of baseball in 20 minutes or so with each installment of the Natch Chat podcast. How you like that? All right. Uh, we have been taking emails and voice memos from people talking about uh, their memories of what the Nationals did in October 2019, winning the World Series. And that's winning the World Series in 2019 was never really properly celebrated slash honored because of the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, you had the great parade, obviously, but, you know, the following season was not the season that the Nationals deserved off winning that championship. So we've had a lot of fun listening to your memories, reading your memories. We got an email. This comes to us from Ryan in Houston. Okay, you can he, he uh, emailed us. You can always email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Wrote Ryan. He says, I'm 47 years old. I grew up in D.C. My father worked for the federal government, and I went to school in the DMV. I remember RFK and the Hogs, USA Arena and the Bernard King Bullets and Cal and Camden Yards, etc. I hung around the DMV through my mid-20s before my career took me all over, everywhere from New York to the Virgin Islands and most recently, Houston, Texas. During the Nats' amazing championship season, I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, but doing the Sunday night through Thursday night aerial commute from Charlotte to Houston every week. He also says, he says that he would listen to me on the radio and that he liked it when I would play my Davy Martinez, I'm proud of the boys soundbite. He says that looped mantra helped distract me from the separation from my family. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, that's one of my favorite soundbites, the Davy Martinez, I'm proud of the boys. I play that all the time on uh, my podcast now. Continues, Ryan. When they finally made the World Series against the Astros, imagine the awkwardness of being surrounded by Astros fans from the plane to the airport, the Ubers, the hotel, and of course, my coworkers who literally all stopped talking to me that week knowing that I was a Nats fan. It was like being a Cold War Russian spy or something. When DC jumped out to a series lead, I had to come to the office with a hard head on to protect myself from the daggers being thrown my way. When the run reached its magical end with Davey Max, Drazim, and the whole team stepping up in championship fashion, I knew it would forever be a part of how I remember that year. A mix of distance and loneliness with one of what I would describe as almost a secret joy enjoyed mostly in silence and mostly alone, but one that I will forever cherish. Soon after the win, my family moved to Houston to be with me and my travels came to an end. I now cherish every day with them, knowing what it was like to be a part. And even if the Nats are not quite the source of joy they once were, I will never forget how the boys helped me through that year. And now, 
at least I have the Nats Chat Podcast to keep the boys close. You know what? Uh, flattery will get you everywhere, Ryan. So you compliment the podcast, you get your email read uh, on the podcast. But that's pretty cool. I mean, one of the things we have clearly learned in doing this pod is how many Nationals fans are spread out around the country and really around the world. And so while you have so many Nats fans who experienced 2019 in the D.C. area, you have so many who experienced 2019 around the country and around the globe. And it's pretty cool to hear stories like these. Yeah, when I actually, when I first read it, uh, you know, reading about it, talking me away from his family, I thought my wife was cutting onions downstairs in the kitchen for a little bit. I, I got to be honest with it. it. The email was was very moving to me. Uh, but yeah, I, I love hearing these stories and, and thanks to everyone for sending it in. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be in Houston during that, you know, and uh, going up against that fan base and and. and, and the Nats going 4-0 in every game played in Texas. So that was a wonderful email. And uh, it's good to get the, the Houston perspective from 2019, sort of someone behind enemy lines. Yeah, well, Ryan, I tell you what, bang on a trash can for those of us who do the Nats Chat podcast and keep up the fight, keep up the resistance, keep up the Nationals representation down in Texas. Uh, but thanks a lot for that email. That was a great one. You can email us, like I said, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter as well, at nats underscore chat. Uh, if you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing that uh, this way. You never have to worry about missing an episode and subscribing uh, does help out the cause that is the Nats Chat Podcast. Also, if you haven't yet given the podcast a five-star rating and written a uh, like one or two sentence review, please do that. Uh, those things help out the podcast a lot, especially on uh, Apple Podcasts. You can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A reminder, Sunday morning at 9, the radio version of the Nats Chat Podcast airs on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond. Uh, you can listen in Richmond on 106.1 ESPN. But if you're out of the Richmond area, you can also listen online at ESPNRichmond.com. That's Sunday morning at 9. We thank everyone for listening. Mark will be back for the next installment of the pod. For Tim Shovers, I'm Al Galdi. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. With Eaton off second, Correa, the shortstop, is deep and just to the right of second. Altuve towards the hole, but still on the infield dirt. They don't put him out of the outfield. Here's the pitch. Swing it a line, drive base, hit toward the line. Eaton rounding third. He's on his way to the plate. The right fielder Springer up with it will play to second. Eaton slides across the plate anyway without a play. It's a single to right for Juan Soto to give the Nationals a two-run lead here in the top of the eighth inning. He drives in his seventh run of the series with his second hit of the night. A walk, a big stolen base, and a two-out RBI single for Soto. Here with two out of the top of the eighth, it's now the Nationals four and the Astros two. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.